Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Coffee and Circuses. On this week's show, I'm joined by Anthony Lee, who is currently undertaking his PhD at Durham. The focus of Anthony's PhD is how Romano-British religion is presented in museums, so in this episode there's a lot of chatter about Roman religion, how the secular and sacred weren't separate in the ancient world, the lived experience of ritual, and how the traditional, oh, weren't the Romans so accommodating of everyone else's religions model doesn't really stand up to scrutiny anymore. Also, you've probably already guessed which deity we talk a lot about in this show, but whatever, you kind of expect it all by now anyway. As Anthony mentions, if you want to help him out, you can fill out his online survey about Roman religion in museums at durham.onlinesurveys.ac.uk backslash gods behind glass. And having filled out the survey myself, I can tell you it does get you thinking about how we consider religion, magic, ritual and superstition and the division that maybe does or doesn't exist between them. Also, Anthony discusses his journey to the PhD, including his 15 years as curator of the archaeological collections of Lincolnshire County Council, so he wasn't coming to this thing without any background experience. Uh, We're also talking a little bit about how the landscape of employment and museums have changed, and also a bit about spending New Year's in Edinburgh. So, as always, thank you for joining me. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Lee. Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been it's been a good one, thanks. Yeah, a restful one. I, I've always been one for a quiet Christmas and New Year myself. So yeah, so back back down to Lincoln, spend it yeah, bit of time with the family, back up to Edinburgh uh, for yeah for Hogmanay. But yeah, but very very quiet and restful, thanks. Yeah, just the way I like it. Yeah, saying the other day, Edinburgh must get pretty hectic though around Hogmanay as well. There must be like this influx of tourism because I, I've always actually wanted to go myself um, and I know many other people would like to. Uh, it does. It, Edinburgh feels like one of those places that a lot of people have it on, I suppose, their bucket list kind of spending New Year's in around in and around Edinburgh. Is it, is it pretty hectic? or is... it, is, it is pretty, yeah, it is pretty busy. I mean, Edinburgh's pretty busy most of the year round, to be honest, and a lot of the locals do grumble about the way yeah, yeah, things get taken over, but there's a really good atmosphere, a really good vibe. You know, the, the, the events the city puts on are incredible. You know, the firework displays, you know, are out of this world. You know, torchlight processions and drums and bagpipes through the city, and yeah, big wow. street party. Yeah, it's it's, it's worth doing. It's, it's, it's worthy of being up in the bucket list. You definitely need to go up and do it, even just for one year. But there's, there's, yeah, there's a good vibe. There's a lot of you know, a lot of tourists and a lot of people around. But Edinburgh always manages to still be very friendly and welcoming with it. You know, there's always a good atmosphere. So, yeah, it's mm. good place to people. Do you go up for the festival much at all? Um, yeah, yeah. I've only been up here for a couple of years, so kind of still settling in. And uh, it's nice not to have to find accommodation. It's nice when you live within walking distance of the festival, you know, to yeah. roll yeah. in and out. But, yeah, the, the Fringe, again, is another event. You know, it's huge. It takes over the city. Um, but, you know, the acts and things you can see are second to none. So it's, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah. So one of those perks of being up here, you know, being able to take advantage of things like that is, is superb. Yeah. <laughs> I don't usually go to anything political on the essays as well, but the other perk is just to be part of the EU in a few years' time. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's a conversation. But yeah. To switch switch the attention to archaeology, so uh, I mean it's been busy busy period for you as well because obviously uh, we had tag at the end of last year. You're presenting in the uh, what have we done for the Roman session for that, uh, yeah. and then we've got split on the horizon with Rat Track where you're chairing the 
the Roman Britain session as well. So it's been all going in that regard. And then yeah. obviously at the same time, PhD juggling as well. Um, has, it, has it felt pretty yeah. full on? Uh, yeah, yeah, things are always busy. It's, it's that funny thing. I mean, I, you know, coming from a, you know, I've from a local authority, you know, working back there, you know, 15 years working in museums to come back into academia. So it's, it's that funny balance to juggle again, you know, where, yeah, the workload is huge. And obviously the pressure is all entirely on yourself. But my timetable being pretty much free, you know, not, not being tied up by a million people's demands and other, other meetings. So, yeah, I, I spent my, th- my first year just kind of getting used, I think, to the idea of, yeah, being able to manage my own timetable in that sort of way. Uh, but, yeah, conferences have been really good. Yeah, it's, it's been a really good first year of PhD for conferences. Yeah, doing uh, track down in Canterbury, like you say, a tag this December, uh, spoke to the Society of Museum Archaeologists conference in November. So, uh it's been nice to get the ideas out there and, and, and generally get, you know, positive, positive reactions to what I'm doing, which is quite nice, particularly from the museum archaeologists. You know, they're the ones that you fear are going to turn around and go, you, you're, you're saying what? We're doing what wrong now? You know, how dare you? Uh, I'd ask you what your favourite conference has been, but we'll just say a track at Canterbury and leave it at that. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, actually, I mean, I really enjoyed the, um, the what have the Romans done for a session at TAG. I, I quite like the uh, discussion at the end, which I felt got quite... Uh, raise some raise some interesting interesting questions, which kind of well, it's actually quite nice because it kind of dovetails in because obviously you were presenting there about your research, uh, saying the, the theme of that session was what have we done for the Romans? So in terms of what are we doing now with Roman archaeology, how are we presenting Roman Britain? And then you've got your PhD, which is Gods Behind Glass: The Interpretation of Romano-British Religious Practice and Identity in British Museums, which I remembered off the top of my head. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Um, But yeah, so your kind of focus is looking about particularly how, as you say, Roman religion or or Romano-British religion or or religion in Roman Britain, however you want to term it, there are various ways. Um, Always problematic, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, how that's actually presented in in museums. But so, yeah, I mean, did you want to just say a little bit about that? So what's the kind of aims of the the project? Yeah, I'm going to come briefly to that. Yeah, it's it's coming from the perspective, you know, I come from a museum archaeology background, you know, so how museums work, how museums put together displays and interpret and engage with archaeological theories, you know, is, is the background I'm, I'm coming from, so that practitioner angle. But the research is really based on the idea of, you know, we're all really super familiar with you know, the Romanization debate and rejecting these dualisms and oversimplifications of Romans and natives and all this sort of jazz. Um, but it's really come from the question that a few scholars have raised, which is, you know, how much are we getting that through to the public? You know, how much are people's perceptions of the period really changing? And of course, yeah, I'm interested in how museums are approaching that. So using religion as, as a lens of looking at some of those wider issues. But, you know, I, I'm interested very much in, say, in those post-colonial approaches, you know, how we approach society and lived religion effectively. You know, how religion and society and economics, you know, how all these things mesh together in people's lives. Um but the you know, material culture side of it as well, you know, putting objects in cases and on display is you know, the kind of centre of what museums do. But how museums, how are museums actually engaging with you know, studies of materiality or looking at embodiment or sensory archaeologies, you know, all these kind of experiential archaeologies of how people engage with the world around them. So, you know, how can all these sorts of things change the way that museums approach religion? So. There's two aspects to the survey, really. Yeah, the other study. One, one is kind of saying, how are museums doing it now? And that's the point I'm, I'm at at the minute, getting out, doing the surveying. I'm hoping to get around to about 80 museums of various shapes and sizes across the country, you know, analyse their displays and the language they're using. And then the other side is, you know, without wishing to preempt the results of that survey, how might they do it 
differently in future? You know, what, how, how can we engage with this subject differently? So, yeah, that's that's where I'm coming from, really. Mm, yeah, I filled out the survey the other day, and we'll get on to talking about it in a second, just because yeah, they, there were bits of it where I sat there just being like, where you make the choices between is this religion, is this ritual, is this whatever. I was like, huh, huh. Yeah, like, it's, it's, a, it's a cruel one I've put out And you can only choose one, which I was like, oh, what do I choose? But just just quickly on, on that note, actually, it's it's, um, it's quite pertinent, actually, what you're talking about, because I had a student come to see me yesterday who is um, trying to come up with a question for their extended essays. So we have dissertations and extended essays. So extended essays are... Uh, only 5,000 words as opposed to the 10,000 word dissertation but she's trying to think up of a topic for that and she wanted to do it on Bath uh, that's where she comes from and we were knocking around ideas and I, I, I said to her about Bath the, the, the temple structure <clears throat> and actually looking at that and critiquing it in terms of these uh, as you're saying like kind of colonial approaches that we have uh, an Iron Age ritual site which then has this big Roman temple dropped on top of it, and then you have potential Iron Age ritual site. <laughs> what was that potential Iron Age ritual site? Okay, is there not is there not actual definite evidence for it being Iron Age? Or... Not I'm aware of. No, no. Uh, name okay. and Yeah, I'm not aware of any any confirmed. I'm going to, to go check that with Steve Willis because I'm sure, sure Steve Willis said to me that there was Iron Age that it's, it is an Iron Age site of some sort. But in any case, my yeah. well, actually, well that that raises <laughs> question because my point with her was that if you look at it in terms of if it is. Uh, a site to um, this, in scare quotes, Iron Age, well, I don't want to use the word Celtic, but the uh, <laughs> local <laughs> native deity, however you want to term it, Sulis. But the, all these questions have been raised by people like Jane Webster about the critiquing syncretism and that the joining yeah. together of two gods is not actually about, oh, they're, they're partners and they're equals, that you know, Mars yeah. is the most common one. That kind of maybe suggests that it's more about domination. And I was saying to her about that idea of looking at something like Bath as an example of how it's presented in terms of this domination versus accommodation uh, debate, you might say. Or yeah. is, is, is something like Bath an example of the, you know, the Romans coming in and just like stamping their authority on a site and building this temple? Or is it actually about accommodation? I would say it's much more about domination. There obviously is... Uh, imbalances between local and native, uh, between native and conqueror when you talk about empire. Um, but also as well, I was quite interested about how it's then subsequently presented. I haven't been to Bath for about probably about 20 years now. I should go back again at some point. But I wonder if you go around the museum in Bath, how much of that would actually be the whole, look at what the Romans done for us. Look how they built this lovely temple and Minerva and Sulis are joined together and everybody gets along and holds hands and dances around the, <laughs> dances yeah. around the spring. And actually we probably it's not not so much the the case but uh but yeah i don't actually know what my question was going to be about that but that's kind of yeah. <laughs> but uh, although you've now raised the question about whether or not it is actually an iron age site at all um yeah <laughs> so that's not a debate we're going to conclusively yet do here and, uh, but yeah yeah from what i'm aware yeah the evidence is certainly yeah not not conclusive and it's an interesting question of whether whether Sulis ever actually existed in the pre-roman mm. period or whether even like you said about syncretism yeah you're dead right and whether some of these syncretized deities are even just being made up to be part of this syncretization or, you know, whether sometimes they're more of an epithet, you know, the Celtic name is more of an epithet than a, a pre-existing deity that's been yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting one. It's, some, um, it's the cosy assumption, you know, of, of all this kind of, yeah, harmony and, and melding together. And like you say, this, this kind of happy melting pot of deities all being brought together. And it, 
it it really underlies an awful lot of religious tension and competition and just yeah the way that religious cults actually work in the real world you know ancient and modern you know always competing to attract new people always finding ways to hook on to the latest zeitgeist you know and attract mm. new people and expand and yeah this this kind of slightly happy clappy idea of you know, all the religions together like you say dancing around the maypole choose the one you want completely free and easy is, is is a dangerous one but it's one that really has seeped into the way people see polytheistic you know roman religion yeah, well, I mean, it's like when you say about the example of live religion and the intersection between religious activity and other spheres in society. Uh, you know, the obvious example with Britain is well, what happened to the Druids? You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're a religious group, and I mean, they obviously have a lot of uh, political clout as well, and the Romans wiped them out. And throughout much of Roman imperial history as well, you wouldn't say that a number, of, like quite a lot of Jewish people would probably argue that there wasn't exactly, you know, freedom of worship there. And it's, you know, it's, there are, that's the thing, particularly, there is a degree maybe of freedom of worship in a polytheistic world, but the problem is, as you say, that when you look at it from a perspective that religion is not separate from the rest of society, when you start looking at religious movements that can be political or deemed subversive or whatever, then it's suddenly a case of, oh no, we can't, we can't have, we can't have that. So we've got to yeah. basically wipe it out. You know, we've got to outlaw it. So yeah, it's not, it's not equal. And it's just generally speaking, just from a logical standpoint, I would argue that when you have something like an example in Britain, this is a conquered province. It's been annexed against most people's will, you would, you would think. I mean, you look at Hadrian's Wall as well. We look at that as this great monument, but there's evidence of things like farmland under it. You know, people have to be yeah. moved off the land. We, we always go back to this, but that idea of what have the Romans done for us? And you think, well, actually, the, the Romans did... It's always this question, isn't it, about do people in Britain... Did people in Britain want to worship their deities in a temple? Is, is building a nice temple a great thing for the local people? I, I was talking to the student, and I suggest perhaps another way you could look at that is, is, the, is the temple almost a cage in some respect, in terms of moving away from this idea of worshipping open, in open spaces, you're like kind of more, you know, sacred groves, springs, etc. But then once you actually put something inside a structure, to some people that might seem the antithesis of how you should worship, that actually you're restricting yourself from the world rather than looking out into it. Yeah. Yeah, because the anthropomorphic depiction of deities ties into that as well. This sense of, yeah, tying down the deity that this is what it now looks like, this is what its physical form is, as opposed to it being something, yeah, yeah, wider and more amorphous and more open to even imagination, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it it does tie in, though, to the end. It's very much this this relativistic idea of, yeah, how do we approach the Romans? Do we still have, as as a modern society, the average person in the street still having this idea that, you know, Roman equals good or Roman mm. equals progress in some ways. You know, that given a choice, the average person in Britain at the time of the conquest would kind of always choose to be more Roman than not because that's civilization. And it, it sounds ridiculous nowadays if you look at the scholarship of Roman Britain and the Roman provinces. But how much has that seeped into the average person's perspective? And certainly my interest is in how much a, a museum still even sometimes quite subtly, not overtly, but you know, just in the way things are constructed, still pushing that message through. It's still there as an underlying, unspoken current. Um, yeah, it's the way that when you walk into displays, you know, one of the first things you tend to see is, is, is armour. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the Roman army is the first element of the narrative because I suppose chronologically we see that as being the first impact of you know, Rome on, on Britain. But again, yeah, what, well, yeah, what's the message that that's given? Yeah, reinforcing these stereotypes of neat, shiny, organised, you know, soldiers marching around. Um, 
the stereotypes are, are, are really deeply embedded, you know, hugely so. Yeah, well, I mean, as we discussed in that session at, at TAG, and as many people have discussed, obviously, so much of this is related to legitimising Britain's own imperial legacy, or at the time it was the present, when a lot of Romano-British archaeology first uh, was be- being undertaken. Um, because I know as well, I mean, you brought up this kind of issue as well of reflecting back in terms of the fact that most people now are used to the idea of going to a church and worshipping there and what an altar in a church is used, etc. But you, you kind of look at that, don't you? That's kind of part of but one of the questions about how people presume and they kind of reflect back exactly, for example, with altars, how altars are used and what they mean. Yeah, some of the language used. Yeah, oh yeah, altars are something I've, yeah, as I've started to go around and doing the surveying. I'm getting more and more interested in how museums are portraying yeah, you know, Roman altars. Um, yeah, the language is, is, is the first thing, really. Yeah, people's perception of what an altar is, of course, yeah, it does generally come from you know, a Judeo-Christian background. Yeah, it's a, a sacred table, effectively. But then we, we use that to refer to Romano-British altars. And yeah, how are we actually getting across to people that the religious practices you know, that they're used for are, are not exactly the same? Um, you know, putting you know, altars are an interesting thing in museum terms because you know they're, they're they're big, they're heavy. You know, they have a lot of practical issues surrounding them, not least the floor loading and the fact you can't just pick them up and move them whenever you want. But they tend to be grouped together as this big homogenous group. You know, so any of the individual narratives of where they might have been used gets lost. You know, a lot of the, you know, the differences relatively in size of altars, you know, get, gets lost as well. This suggestion that smaller altars may have been a lot more portable. You know, larger altars, you know, more static in, uh, you know, in the Temple Temenos, for example. But the idea that they might have been used for different things, you know, some altars have, have a focus on the top, you know, for direct, you know, lighting of a fire and offerings. Others are flat tops, you know, they're, they're mensai, they're, they're supporting tables, effectively. So they have different ritual functions, yeah, that, that all gets really lost and homogenised together. Um, the, the thing for me with altars, really, in museums, is, is the focus on the epigraphy, you know, this sense of, you know, all the lighting is, is raking across the writing so you can see the, the text on the front, and it's, it's that archaeological bias, again, towards classics, isn't it? You know, the, mm. you know, it's got writing on it, it's automatically elevated. And the interpretation with this, usually a translation of the text on the front of the altar, very rarely, I'm sorry to say, actually explaining some of that text it's often just the latin and the english with a lot of the terminology and you know the detail not really explained but the imagery often like yeah the wonderful imagery we get on the sides of altars you know pateri and jugs and knives and animals you know all these the process of ritual that's being laid out very often in in image form you know and that's what it was intended for of course you know it's intended to to show people at the time yes just to legitimize the process and to act as that social memory of what's going on but it's hidden away, you know, the lighting isn't showing it, or it's hidden beside display furniture. So, yeah, I think altars are a really great example of how what could be a really evocative object in terms of looking at Romano-British religion and ritual practices and, you know, the really gory, visceral reality of, of animal sacrifice, but, of, you know, the, the wider, more holistic ritual process is reduced to some big blocks of stone grouped together. And, oh, look, there's some Latin text on the front. So, yeah, I, I have a big issue with the way that altars are being, are being displayed and used. Yeah. They're just an example of the potential that we're missing in saying, look, this is how religion actually worked in practice, rather than just to say, you know, here's some writing, oh, look, it's got the name of a god on it, isn't that interesting? Mm. That list of deities approach to religion, you know, who were the gods and goddesses worshipped in Roman Britain is something I think museums still get locked into very much, rather than, you know, why were they worshipping, how were they worshipping? 
it's very much more the the who and the where is, is, has been the focus. I think that's something we need to turn on its head. Yeah, do you think there's a emphasis then just on this whole look how many deities there were? Like It's almost like Pokemon in some <laughs> respect, just to, to try to demonstrate yeah. like, the breadth of them, rather than, as you're saying, the actual experience of worshipping these deities and what it involved. We try to put everything in kind of neat little, little packages almost in terms of... I mean, whenever I talk about Roman religion students, I talk about the contractual relationship between the worshipper and the deity, and the mm-hmm. deities are not really omnipotent in the same way as a Judeo-Christian deity would be. They are uh, they have their own kind of sphere of influence almost. But I'm aware when I'm saying that, that I'm lacking in the nuance, you might say, of the fact that these different deities serve different roles. In, and almost certainly, as you're saying, like the way we... Or the way we, or the way they, um, although there still are people that would worship them, but anyway. Um, yeah. but, um, That's another issue, we can come back to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there, are, there are ways that people uh, would have approached these deities, like, in terms of, as you're saying, there's the altar, but then we know from increased focus on things like animal bones that uh, the combination of animals that you might sacrifice or you might use in ritual feasting is not going to be the same between different deities. You know, in the case of Mithras, it's very much chicken and piglet are the most common uh, foodstuffs that you would find in a Mithraic feast, whereas uh, I think if Mercury, I think it tends to be more sheep and goat, uh, from Anthony King's article correctly. And yes. So there are all those sort of things where there's yeah. those different combinations of, and, and then obviously that kind of leads into, increasingly now people are looking at sensory approach, so if you walked into a Mithraeum, a Mithraeum is probably going to smell somewhat different to a temple to uh, I don't know, maybe Isis or a temple to Jupiter, for example. Uh, you know, they might burn incense. But then the thing is that we don't even know, I suppose, if they're always burning the same type of incense from the same place, etc. You know, the kind of reactions that people have and the way they, they interact with these spaces, uh, the activities they conduct in them. Because sacrificing a chicken uh, is probably a lot easier than sacrificing a large pig, for example, or a yeah. goat. You know, yeah. trying to get the animal in and trying to keep it in like, yeah. place, etc. Yeah. yeah, it's... it's um, the, the actual process of actually how you go through doing all of this is something that is perhaps a lot more varied than people tend to tend to appreciate. Yeah, and it is the multi-sensory aspect of it as well. I think we need to try and get across. There was, there was a really interesting piece, uh, Candice Weddle, an American kind of classic scholar, but looking at the multi-sensory aspects of sacrifice, she attended kind of a, an Islamic mass animal sacrifice. It was a bull sacrifice. Um, you talk about you know, sacrifice like a hundred bulls. You know, it's a huge thing. It's sort of an everyday occurrence in the ancient. You know, comparable to the ancient world but you know the, the idea she was recording the idea that you know, the, the, the dominant smell from the from the whole process was actually you know feces you know mm. that was you know, even going back to it later the, you know, the lingering smell wasn't the lovely incense it was just the smell of you know faint tang of blood and, and, and of you know and of feces going in and that when she was actually witnessing the, the act of sacrifice it was the sound that got you know when the throat of the animal is being is being slit it was actually the sound of all of that arterial blood hitting the floor that really hit her. So it's interesting to think how you experience these things. But days afterwards, some of these smells lingering in the space, you know, and have people scattered sand on the, you know, on the ground. Yeah, if you're walking across that temple space a few days afterwards, is the crunch of maybe sand on, on, on your, under your feet going to be a reminder of the act that took place days ago? Or, mm. you know, but he's been, been a presence at that ceremony and they're walking back through the town later. Are other people going to know that they've been engaged in that because of the certain you know, smells that they're there carrying with them? And it's all that kind of yeah, engagement with the act that goes on as well as the actual moment of sacrifice. I find really interesting. You know, it's, it's that social engagement with it and the lingering aspects. And 
you know, all, all these sorts of lived experiences around it that we don't tend to engage with particularly much. Mm, no, it brings to mind as well people like Zena Kamash, former guest of the podcast. People who've looked into, um, I suppose, it turned as memory studies, and you know, when you mm. undertake like a feast, and I suppose we presume that a feast, you'd have a feast, and everyone would clear the stuff away afterwards. Actually, that might always be the case because some of the the feasts, the remains of it, might be just dropped onto the floor and essentially buried, and then it becomes part of the temple diet. The act itself, the remains of it, then get imbued into the temple structure, and it becomes part of the memory of that space, like almost physically, because bits of it are still there. Yeah. It's that constant reminder of, of it, and it kind of perpetuates how those those rituals are undertaken. As I say, there's a whole that's the thing, like the whole kind of experience. They're saying the whole kind of lived religion experience is so much more varied, so much more colourful, and perhaps you know, even though museums try to emphasise that range, the range of deities, they don't emphasise the range of experience. Perhaps, perhaps in some yeah. respects, it's more the emphasis is more on the deities than it is on the worshippers, as, you, as you're saying, and the the variety that of of the way that people go about this. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, I think we can actually make it more engaging. I think yeah, we can we can make it more accurate, you know, more accurate is a dangerous word, but yeah, we can make it perhaps more reflective of, of the scholarship and the way we see it now. And I think at the same time, we also perhaps make it even more engaging for visitors. Mm. You know, if they've been brought up on on stories of classical deities, you know, the list of oh yes, there's there's Minerva, there's Mercury, there's Mars, there's Jupiter, and, and linking them back to some very vague classical descriptions of what they were and what their stories were, it's actually quite detached in many ways. I think it's not necessarily that engaging for people. So I think we can make it a lot more you know, reflective and a lot more engaging. There's the interesting thing as well, of course, is you know, how are these deities being referred to? There's the the, you know, the Ashwell um, horde, you know, the Dea Sununa, found a couple of years ago, the, the detecting horde there, where, of course, you've got the imagery in that horde is, is of Minerva, but you've got the, the deity being named Dea Sununa. And, of course... That sense of yes, you know, people are increasingly adding anthropomorphic images to deities. It just gives you that message of you know actually you know, when we're finding you know and using Minerva as an example, you know, a statuette of Minerva somewhere displayed in a museum of oh this is Minerva. Look, you know she's got the Corinthian helmet pushed back on her head and she's carrying a spear and she's got the Aegis. You know all these classical symbolisms. Therefore, you know equals Minerva, but actually with no real certainty that the person at the time wasn't giving that deity a completely different name. And it's presumably some similar characteristics, but Minerva was just the imagery that happened to best suit, or, you know, fitted the needs of the time to, to use it, or what was just available. But of course, yeah, we're interpreting it now as, oh, they were worshipping Minerva here. And the person at the time might be going, hang on a second, whoa, this is not Minerva. You know, mm, yeah. And how dare you misinterpret my deity like that? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's a minefield. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, it's a question. It's interesting how then you communicate that to a wider audience. How do you how do you communicate the nuance, but at the same time still make it engaging and still make it so easily uh, you might say consumable, uh, for lack of a better word, in terms of you know getting people to appreciate it? Because I mean, we talked about this before. Because you went to the the London Mithraeum while at Tag. Uh, yeah. What did you yeah. What did you think of that? Designed as a more of an experience than a museum, you would say. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a really nice chance actually went in London to nip out and visit that. Yeah, over, overall, yeah, I mean, it, what, yeah, what, what a great resource that is. You know, to have that, the, the, yeah, the money, the quality of the design put into it. To have that as a free exhibition, yeah, you know, is it, it, an awesome thing. Uh, but it has to be lauded utterly. Religion, yeah, you know, Roman religion material, such a high profile. Um, but yeah, to be, to be, I suppose, the, the critical eye turned on it. I found it an interesting one because it's. I was just going to say, on a, quick, on a very quick tangent, like it must be very difficult yeah. for you to ever just go into a museum and just enjoy it for what it is. Without... I, don't, I, don't enjoy, I don't enjoy museums anymore. No, it's a real, <laughs> real problem, yeah. 
to go to the museum curator really enjoys them quite the way they used to when they were kids. <laughs> now, I think you've, you've got these three elements to it, to people that have got, yeah, so you, the first element, it's a really nice engagement with contemporary art, as well, which I think is really nice as you go in. Uh, but yeah, you've got this big object wall, you know, 600 objects or whatever it is, and this, you know, incredibly dramatic display case, really well displayed, really visual experience, interpretation deliberately kept to a minimum. Um, but it's material from the wider Bloomberg dig rather than specifically just the Mithraeum, which I'm not always entirely sure if, if other visitors are going to latch on to. Mm. I didn't see many people engaging with the really funky iPads. And again, yeah, the idea of having your interpretation not only digital, but then putting that on your website so people can engage with it when they get back home is a really nice idea. I think that's something more museums should should look at doing. Um, but there's some incredible objects in there that I wasn't was quite sure people were really being able to pick out from the mass visual effect. You know, it's it's still a bit of an homage to the aesthetics of, of display in museums. You know, it's still very much prioritising how pretty things are. Uh, but yeah, then you go down from there into the the AV room, um, where you've got this, and I, yeah, really well done, yeah, incredibly high production quality of the, the audio with subtle, you know, nice visual projections on the wall to support those. You know, you've got Joanna Lumley, you know, and her hmm. amazing voice introducing it. You've got the voice of, of, of scholars, you know, that which is really nice. Yeah, the scholars directly speaking about Mithras was really nice. And Richard Gordon was, was one of them. I can't remember who the other people were on there. But uh, so I, I didn't notice your voice on there. You're, you're not no, I was still doing my PhD at the time. I was too oh, young, okay. too young. Came, came in late. I've done stuff with them since. And uh, we got so we got so I don't I don't know what's going to happen this year, but there are planning on. I mean, as they mentioned, because obviously in that tag session, uh, the Mithraeum was presented on there and. Uh, they're talking about the customer feedback. I say customer, I mean, it's free, but you know what I mean. Um, the, the visitor feedback. Um, and I, there are intentions to kind of develop from some new things from that, I think, in the coming year, which yeah, um, the intention is for me to be involved in. Fingers crossed I am. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because as we were saying before, uh, well, I mean, actually, no, I'll carry, let me carry on and finish your... Well, just to say, yeah, so that's, that's you know, such a yeah, really interesting space. And I think that's it's introducing... And yeah, I mean, feel free to contradict me on this, but it, it seemed to me to be introducing Mithraism on the kind of imperial scale. It was a very wide-scale look at Mithraism. It wasn't necessarily specifically about you know the Walbrook Mithraism and, and, and the specific finds from there. It was that wider look at Mithraism as a concept. And I suppose because of that, maybe it lost some of that specificity. And, and it's, this is where it gets difficult, isn't it? Because you've got... You know, visitors going in there who perhaps have never even heard of Mithras before. So, you know, how much information can you bombard them with? And if you see, if you go to the Museum of London display of the Mithraeum, where you've got the sculpture, you know, you've got images, the old, all the wonderful, incredible carvings. You know, you've got Mithras, but you've got you've got Bacchus there as well. You've got Serapis. You know, you've got all these interesting questions about how cults interacted with each other. You know, what what happened to the temple at the end of its life? You know, in terms of destruction, even iconoclasm, or the, you know, the respectful burial, or you know, of the sculpture, or did it even change denomination? You know, all that, all that complicated stuff, which I feel is sidestepped in, in the, the Mithraeum presentation itself. Um, but then, yeah, you go down to the Mithraeum itself. Yeah, nice small groups really helps with the atmosphere. You know, when those lights drop, you could feel that you were completely alone in the space. And I think that's just such a special experience to have to kind of feel that sense of personal engagement with it. And yeah, the yeah, the display that comes up with the lights and the voices yeah really really engaging stuff really emotive stuff i liked that they went with the rather than the very solemn almost monastic approach you know they've gone with the idea that yeah, this is a group of guys you know enjoying themselves eating drinking celebrating you know it was really nice to get that lived experience across yeah no it's uh 
as I said before, it's one of those things where sometimes I think that that's the thing with the cult of Mithras is that it gets slightly misleading for people because I think it is sometimes overly sold as being this mystical, secretive sect that have this kind of special knowledge. Uh, whereas we're going back to the lived experience aspect of religion, most of the time people are probably joining up because their mates were members, they wanted to try and get further up the social ladder or the military hierarchy. And yeah, they would have undertaken these initiation ceremonies, but at the same time, half the time they would have just been sat around probably getting a bit pissed and eating chicken. Um, so it's it's you know it's the, it's the local Danvos of the ancient world. It's uh, you know it's not it's not necessarily a case for a lot of people that join the cult that it was about this idea of. Uh, accessing mystical knowledge. I mean, Mithras is actually a very, very good example of projecting back. I mean, I mean, you mentioned the term Mithraism. It's still used. They used it in the Mithraeum, and that's one of the things that I get a little bit like oh, because because when we say ism at the end of something, it kind of it infers this this idea of something that's like Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. Um, it's very odd. That, that, I mean, this because the the idea of Mithraism, Mithraist in, in scare quotes goes back to the sort of late 1800s, early 20th century, uh, when people were very, very much fixated, as a number of people still are, on this idea that it was, you know, in some respect, a close cousin of Christianity, and that yeah. there's a lot of similarities. But in fact, actually, there's so much about the cult of Mithras that we don't know in terms of what their actual beliefs were. We don't know if there is any central doctrine. Um, and it's funny how we don't... I, I always point out that we don't use isms at the end of other... Um, cults in the ancient world like we don't have magnematism um, yeah. we don't have yeah, which would be the yeah. worst one it's uh, but that, I always think Mithras is an interesting one because there is still that underlying going back to what you were saying earlier that kind of underlying relationship that people think it has with Christianity which um, it's um, but it it's explained often in ways that I think emphasises that I mean when you look at descriptions of Mithraea they'll talk about the anteroom and it'll be called like a narthex but that's a term that's taken from a church like it's mm. just I mean anteroom is probably just a better way of referring to it because narthex kind of suggests its relationship to kind of ritual as well and uh, no it's uh, yeah it, it's 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 an interesting Mithraea's a very interesting example in that respect also one thing I noted from Tag was the fact that because we're in London in particular it came up so many times like the Temple of Mithra seems to have become in a weird way almost emblematic of Roman Britain because I think it's become one of the most prominent finds and the time at the time it was such a big media um, storm and then you've had the recent excavations with the Walbrook uh, on the Walbrook as well with Mola and uh, Bloomberg's involvement but it just feels like the, particularly the head of Mithras has become this symbol almost of Roman Britain it always gets picked up time and time and again as being this site I just found that fascinating really um, and it's interesting just perceptions that kind of leads to in people's minds of what Roman Britain is the Druid, yeah, 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 how reflective it actually was, yeah, because the size of the, the, yeah, the number of worshippers of, of Mithras across the, yeah, the scope of Roman Britain, yeah, can't have been particularly large in the grand scheme of things compared to some other cults. Yeah, no, so yeah, I, I should try not to use Mithraism because you're right, it's one of those easy <laughs> phrases that, no, it, 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 but you're right, it's, it's a great example of how you kind of get used to using a phrase without really questioning it, and I think that in some ways that's a really good example of getting to the heart of this, yeah, is querying that sort of thing, so now that you're absolutely right, it's... Uh, yeah, it's easy and dangerous thing to fall into. But yeah, yeah. Mithras, is, is it the sense that because Mithras is a cult, you know, it, it's about men, it's about high status, high powered men, it's got connections to the military, you know, does it kind of get put on a pedestal perhaps because of these sorts of, you know, associations that you know, have led to it 
being given a status uh, you know, above other cults that uh, we overlook. I don't know, is there, is there yeah. an element of colonial patriarchy actually coming into even the fact that, that Mithras has been you know, treated the way it has been? Well, uh, that's quite interesting, actually, just on a tangent. I mean, I've brought this up a number of times on the podcast because I became very interested in how Rudyard Kipling presents the Roman world in his stories. And Kipling was a massive fan of the Mithras cult, um, partly because he was a Freemason. Um, he wasn't a big fan of, well, not he's not he wasn't not a fan of organized religion, but he was very very against evangelical religion. Uh, mm. He liked the idea of a religion that was a universal brotherhood, and I use the word brotherhood because, as with so many people at the time, he was a misogynist and didn't want women to have the vote. So the idea of a religion that was purely male. Uh, which was, at least in his mind, he viewed it, he was reflecting Freemasonry back onto it and saw basically a more religious version of Freemasonry. And that, to him, was the ideal kind of religion. Um, But Kipling, obviously, tremendously well-read at the time, probably. I would still say that Kipling probably is one of the most important figures in the public perceptions of Mithras and how they've arisen. Because the number of people then that took that up, Rosemary Sutcliffe and the Eagle of the Ninth and various other authors who brought it up in popular culture, um, still describe it in very much a similar way to what Kipling would have done because they were influenced by Kipling and less so by scholars. Um, and that's just an interesting thing. Sometimes, I think sometimes we uh, we don't pay necessarily enough attention in the scholarly world how some of those ideas are perpetuated through like media and going back to where they come from. And I think Kipling is yeah. a very interesting example of where this influence of somebody writing for a much, much wider audience has had probably a larger impact on public perceptions of a Roman cult than, say, most of the scholars for the last hundred years. You just don't realise it because it's not scholarly in terms of you're not really necessarily exposed to it so much. You think Kipling was just an author from like a hundred years ago writing like these nice kid stories about Roman Britain. But then you think people grew up with those, they perpetuate the ideas, they use them in their own books, etc. And you know, and it kind of relates to, I suppose, what you're saying about museums. It's that idea of we can sit around in a room and talk about how uh, we should talk about Mithras like this or talk about this religion like this. But then it's a question of if we're just doing that as scholars, then that's not necessarily communicating it to a wider audience. It's this, yeah, this very closed group, yeah, which is why we go back to the tag session. It's why it's really nice that you've got people like Caroline Warren speaking at that, you know, who is somebody who is, you know, an author, a yeah, very successful, very popular children's author, but, you know, takes a huge amount of care and pride in, in trying to get that authenticity, yeah, trying to have this core of, yeah, scholarly truth before then putting the veneer of, you know, of excitement and, and, and fiction onto it to make a successful children's story. I think, yeah, she's a really good model going forward yeah of how uh, things can be made to reach a wider audience than, mm. yeah yeah no I think it's important uh, talking of reaching a wider audience uh, it's a nice little segue uh, into uh, just quickly talking about the online survey uh, as I say I filled it out the other day myself um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I've got to be honest I actually when I was going through it there were some deities in there that I was like I've not heard of them before some, I've got it up here actually who, who, who have I not heard of really of before Priapus was a deity I've not really come across before. Yeah. Um, Googling that one from the uh, university servers, that one might. So. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, because I, obviously some of these deities I, I expect literally appear on one single inscription and nowhere else. Well, I, I mean, or it's just yes, in one location. Yes, yeah. yeah. I've tried to pull together a list of ones that, yeah, so all attested, but yeah, a, a very different range. Um, yes, the survey is, yes, it's an online survey. So yeah, for anybody to fill in people with any kind of interest in the Roman world, professional, you know, 
amateur, yeah, community, whatever, um, yeah, students, everything at all, but just trying to capture a sense of how people are seeing Romana British religion, yeah, what some of their perceptions are about religion itself and how religion was in the ancient world, how we categorise it today, and a bit about their museum visiting as well. The museum questions are some of the hardest ones, actually, because it's trying to say to people, imagine some of the museums you visited, how well did you think they presented religion? It would have been easier to capture people if they were leaving a specific display. Mm. Exactly. You can't really do that with the internet. Um, but yeah, the kind of recognition of deities, just, I'm just trying to capture them. Uh, predicting the results, but trying to capture a sense of, yeah, what are the deities from Roman Britain that people tend to know more than others? And, you know, without preempting the results, a lot of people are going to have heard of Jupiter and Mars and Minerva, and yet deities like Priapus or, you know, Nantus Swelter or, yeah, some of the, the more native deities are far less likely to have penetrated. And it's just, yeah, that question, yeah, why, why? Why is it that yeah, the, the classical deities are far more recognised, even if they're not necessarily better attested in Roman Britain? So, yeah, just trying to Capture, so no, no right or wrong answers for any of these, just trying to capture a snapshot of people's thoughts and opinions that might provide some interesting comparanda to what I'm seeing in museum displays. I'll be very interested to see where Mithras comes in that, that ranking of most well-known deities. <laughs> just because of what I was saying earlier, though, as well, about this sense that perhaps he's emblematic. But then I suppose there's an interesting question about demographic as well, because there's people that, people that grew up when the temple was originally excavated know about it. Perhaps people now that are coming through would know about it because of the Bloomberg excavations and the, the temple being open. If you probably ask people that kind of grew up maybe in the late 80s into the 90s uh, who may be studying at that time, maybe it wasn't so uh, evident to them, it wasn't so prevalent so much, uh, at least for like most, most people, because I mean, back in the 90s, it was just stuck on top of a roundabout and nobody really paid much attention to it. Yeah, I mean, the thing I struggled with was the table where you've got uh, a list of different activities, and then you've got choose whether it's religion, ritual, superstition, magic, secular, etc. And for me, that, that whole question of religion versus ritual is one that I'm just like, uh, I, I just, I really sort of struggle. So I, I, yeah, because it's, 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 it's such a difficult one in some cases to know what to put it. And also, I suppose, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, no right answer yeah, it's interesting yeah. questions, though, just about semantics in some respects, like superstition and magic. Like, what it, do people see a difference between superstition and magic? I mean, we had a Adam Parker on the podcast previously, many, many weeks ago now. Uh, Adam, like, focus of his PhD is magic. It's, it, he was saying that magic now is becoming something that seems to be become, becoming more uh, mainstream again, that it was kind of a loony fringe in Roman archaeology, but now this mm. idea of magic is coming in. But yeah, like, where do you divide between religion, ritual, and magic? It's, uh, no, it's just very interesting questions, like, to actually get your kind of brain working about how you how you think of these things. And there's a question you yeah. could ask, does, does religion actually exist in the Roman world in terms of, because again, well, religion, that, yes. yeah, it's, something we... it's a very Christian concept. This is it. Yeah. There's a lot of anthropologists in particular would say that, yeah, the word religion shouldn't really be applied to the ancient world at all. And yeah, it, it's more a series of questions, yeah, about our modern categorizations and how we see it rather than necessarily applying to the ancient world. Because yeah, there's, there's some bits where, yeah, the terminology doesn't necessarily directly apply and it's, it, yeah, it's more trying to get that broad brush of, yeah, where, where do people categorise? Where are yeah, people over the, the course of the whole survey generally seeing certain things as, as live? It, even things like, you know, observing a religious procession, you know, is that actually a, an act in itself that is ritual or religious, or, or is it completely secular mm. in watching a procession go past, trying to see how people are engaging with some of these concepts? So, 
Yeah, the results hopefully will be will be interesting. I've got, I've got nearly a hundred responses so far, so uh, oh. it'll be interesting just to see on the yeah. Because you, if I recall earlier in the survey, like people do say like what their kind of background is, right? In terms of if they're an archaeologist, museum person, etc. It'll be fascinating yes. to see how things like the number of people that use the term ritual, like most common ritual, or as opposed to people that use the term religion most most frequently, how that kind of compares with their background as well. Like where you get, yeah. I'd be interested to see if like you get like find people that are more of a kind of, you might say academic background who are more towards ritual, but then more people more generally might refer to towards religion because they're more kind of used to it. Whereas as we're saying, like, you know, particularly if you study these kind of things, you're sort of sat there going like, does religion actually exist in the ancient world? Like, ah, <laughs> I, I yeah, had a... Yes, yeah, but yeah, background and kind of the generator of there's this quite a good age range as well so okay. it's something that yeah people have perhaps been in formal education in more recent years yeah did they actually studied the roman period more recently do they have a different perception as to somebody who maybe stood it it's difficult you can never get the formula ones because obviously somebody you know could be now be in their 60s but yeah obviously completely up to date with all of the, mm. the modern discussion so there's always yeah the pinch of salt as to quite how much detail you can break it down into but i'm, I'm hoping there's going to be a few trends that come out of that that maybe give an interesting sense of yeah how, how perceptions are, are changing or yeah how different backgrounds and different working environments maybe change the way people perceive yeah. religion I'd be interested I don't know if there was a question I can't remember now but uh, going back to what I was saying about Kipling earlier like it would be fascinating to find out where people got their initial exposure to a lot of this stuff from as well like what's their earliest memories of hearing about some of these things like the the deities because i'd be fascinated i mean kipling's not so widely read now but i i mean neil gaiman in his american gods there's a conversation in there about mithras and then i realized that gaiman wrote a forward to a collection of kipling stories where clearly where he got the idea from so <laughs> it's, it's interesting like how those things are getting over to petro but where people are first exposed to it because i think i mean richard hingley i remember wrote on this like in, i think it was in his uh is it in what is it roman roman soldiers and english gentlemen something like that roman generals english uh, soldiers but he, i think he was saying in there it might have been something else but he was saying somewhere about how sometimes we in the academic sphere we're overly dismissive of how people are exposed to things in their childhood and how that kind of still carries through throughout their life in terms of how we're mm-hmm. taught about the romans in school a lot of those things that we don't get well, even as academics because as an academic, you can't study everything. Uh, people think that we're experts in absolutely everything to do with the Roman world, but obviously we know there's a very tiny area that we're experts in. Then maybe a lot of stuff that we know quite a bit about. There's a lot, a lot of stuff that we know something about, and then there's a fair bit that we don't know anything about. Uh, and probably as you're moving out towards those kind of peripheries of where we don't know so much, probably the stuff that we learned as kids is stuff that we're still carrying with us. We just don't realise that's the case we just presume because that's not my area of study in the Roman world so I kind of just my go-to is something that I was taught years ago but that's actually maybe not really the case yeah 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 yeah, yeah recognizing where those weaknesses are and again yeah, maybe in museums when we're talking about authenticity and yeah, kind of authority in museums maybe that's the best thing we can get across to people yeah is, is, is getting rid of the idea of and this isn't you know, a new concept in museums it's something you know, the, the new museology of the late 1980s onwards is this idea of yes yeah, stopping museums being these you know bastions of knowledge you know this one way you know you know, diatribe of, of absolute truth coming from a curatorial voice you know to, to a to a, a naive wide-eyed public soaking it up it, it is that acknowledgement of yeah this is only an opinion this is only an interpretation this is this is our best knowledge and getting visitors to recognize that and, and, and to question it in, in, in a good way not, i don't mean a kind of a, a pseudo-scientific way you know to say that you know, what, what i read on the internet must trump what i what i read in the museum. <laughs> but, which is another whole other issue that, that yeah, we, yeah 
could have a conversation for, for another day, but but, you know, but getting people to, to recognise, you know, and, and ask the questions and, and acknowledge, you know, where where we know and don't know things and that, you know, that things are only ever interpretations. I think that's something that's a really powerful thing to get across. But it's doing that without undermining, you know, the evidence-based approach and an empirical approach to, to presentation. But, you know, yeah, re- realising that, you know, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to approach things from a perspective that, you know, think things are a bit different. And this is the thing with Roman Britain, is that this whole they were just like us fallacy is something that really you know, seeps through the, you know, all the periods that might be presented in a museum. A lot of visitors will feel very much at home in the Roman period because they feel so comfortable with it, because of movies, because of TV, because of, you know, school ground education. And it, it's trying to challenge them, the, 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 the basics and the fundamentals of what they think they know. Like the, the whole cutout face. I have, I have a bit of a thing about cutout faces in museums. You know, when you go in, you, the cutout board, you know, the little person in the toga or the gladiatorial, you know, uh, outfit. You know, with, with classical buildings, you know, temples and things in the background. And put your, you know, put your face in the hole, and you can be this person in the past because they they were just like you, really, just with a funny costume on. And I think, yeah, that that that's quite a dangerous thing, I think, to uh, yeah, yeah, people the idea of. It's, in, it's uh, I think that translates as well over into questions about the classroom, this idea of talking to students. And it's trying to find that balance between students look at you as a lecturer and they, they think that you're supposed to know everything uh, and they'll take everything you say as gospel. And as I was saying earlier, there are things that you're an expert in, some things you know stuff very well, some stuff that you know okay, and a lot of stuff that you probably don't know so well. And you're doing your best to to you know sometimes you'll have it i'll do a seminar or a lecture on something where i'm like oh, i'm not this isn't my complete area of expertise i know something about it but it's not exactly and it's trying to get yeah. students to understand though that even when it comes to my area of expertise they can they can question me it's trying to find that balance between authority basically the authority more generally of an expert but also getting people to be critical of it at the same time and it's very yeah. difficult i think for people to be critical of something when they know that somebody knows a lot more than them it's it's a difficult one in terms of where you find that balance and as you say it's it's, it's the case in museums because on the one hand museums sort of be educational advanced people's understanding how do you then get to a point though where people are critical but they're not critical enough so much they're just like museums don't matter it's it's a it's a difficult one to find the balance to but uh, i suppose those are questions where i don't think there is an answer in the end really is it? it's just kind of an ongoing dialogue of how you how you go about doing that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, while still hopefully being enjoyable places as well, because ultimately, yeah, but we don't want to turn museums back into, yeah, dull, dry places, which I think is where, yeah, it comes back to the, the lived experience for me. Is it's, it's about people. If you're getting back to fundamentally about how people are experiencing the world around them and experiencing objects and materials and sensory experiences, you keep that fundamental engagement with, with the visitor. You know, in that sense, you are saying that the people are you know, just like them in a way because you know, they are still human beings with, with senses. And it's, it's, yeah, it's keeping that balance, as you say. Mm. It's difficult. Museums are in a, a very difficult position for that. You know, because obviously resources are very tight. And I think yeah, it's not about, oh, if only this museum had you know, a million pounds to spend on some you know, amazing VR experience. Or, oh, if every, you know, every object label could be 10,000 know, 10, word essay in detail. You know, it's, it's not necessarily about that for me it, it is more fundamentally how we approach the subject yeah how do we integrate religion into these other subjects how do we you know how, how do we get people thinking about belief in the supernatural and how that's affecting people's lives on, you know, on a really tangible day-to-day basis yeah 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 cool. I was <laughs> like, 
It's, it's just uh, so many questions. It's uh, <laughs> just uh, as uh, well. I suppose we have to move towards closing now, but um, just move the story back a little bit. So you mentioned earlier that you spent a number of years, fifteen years, am I right, as uh, uh, curator of the archaeological yeah. collections of Lincolnshire County Council? Yes. Um, but how did you? So what kind of led you down the route to becoming curator, getting interested in the Roman world? What's what sparked the interest, and how did it kind of progress? Yeah, I feel, I feel like a lot of people, you know, always, always enjoyed history. You know, I grew up in a family that always would enjoy going out to historical sites and things, you know, so always from a very young age was, you know, engaged to history and the landscape and that interest in it. Um, it, it was university that because of, you know, got me involved in being interested in being a Romanist. Um, I, I went to university actually in, uh, in Lincoln. It was uh, Bishop Grosseteste University, as it is now, a small university. It was a, a college of, of University of Hull when I was there originally. Uh, but very much focused on local practitioners. Yeah, it was a very, the course was, was a heritage course, so it was, it was museums, but it was heritage legislation, it was archaeology, yeah, it was a really mixed course. Um, but one of the lecturers there, Mick Jones, was teaching the archaeology and, and the Roman material there, and he was the city archaeologist in Lincoln at the time. So it was a case, yeah, that, that was a really interesting, interesting experience of, of really engaging with you know, the urban archaeology and the archaeology all around, you know, so it, it was a a very practical bent to the course and that kind of really got me interested in not just the Roman period but also in the, you know, how the Roman period interacts with daily life and the, and the modern cityscape you know that, that sense of you know how we engage with the past as much as the Roman period um, I was quite lucky that you know at the time I I did that you know I was able to go straight into museum works so I was able to you know, there's a, uh, the, the museum in Lincoln the collection was opened in 2005 and I was able straight from university to, to go into a a clerical job there, actually involved in building the museum and you know, the project, you know, looking at the finances and things like that. So that gave me a toe in the door for a few years before a curatorial job came up. And obviously, you know, I, I don't envy anybody coming out of university wanting to get work in museums now, you know, and something yeah. incredible. God, yeah, across the entire sector. Yeah. Talented people, who, you know, who, who you know, struggle to get any kind of toe in the door. It's a horrible industry for that. But he says to me, he's gone back into being a student full-time. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll meet you in, in a couple of years myself, looking to get back into the museum world, and please let me back in. Uh-huh. You know, so yeah, I was lucky to get into museums on that front, on the curatorial side. And uh, you know, I mean, Lincoln has, as I just said, you know, an amazing Roman heritage. Um, you know, the museum collections often often get overlooked. You know, Lincoln, Lincolnshire is, is one of those kind of overlooked bits of the county. But you know, Lincoln is an, is an amazing city. Its, it's archaeological heritage is, is stunning. Um, you know, it's got, I think, more visible Roman remains than any other city in the UK, and yet people don't think of Lincoln at all. Mm. Uh, but, you know, particularly in terms of the defences and the gates, you know, there's, there's a huge amount to see. You know, you can still walk through, like, three Roman gateways in Lincoln. Um, you know, I, be honest, uh, I don't know if I've ever been to Lincoln as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, it should be on everybody's list as a Romanist. That, that whole cathedral thing just gets in the way, you know, it mm. blocks the Roman area. But it's one of the few places I, uh, I I'm willing to acknowledge it. Probably is a church, a Roman church there as well. One of the few that I'll, I'll accept. <laughs> yeah. You went to you were at Leicester as well, right? For for a while. Or, right? Yeah, yeah. My mate was at Leicester. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Leicester has a lot to answer for. So I've got a good number of people that come through this podcast. Although I know an archaeology seemed to have passed through Leicester at some point or another. Uh, yeah, the archaeology or the museum side, and yeah, particularly yeah, in the East Midlands, obviously it's a bit of a, a hub. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what kind of led you to, to Durham for the, the PhD then? Was it just, it, the opportunity just came up or? Yeah, it, well, it, it all came about really, because I mean, I've been looking and toying for a while with doing it, but um, it, it all kind of coincided really with, with 
my move from Lincoln to Edinburgh, which was my wife getting a job at the National Museum of Scotland. She does Chinese archaeology. So she's, yeah, she's a Chinese Bronze Age specialist. So wow. exciting. That's, that's, that's I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably some interesting cross-pollination that goes on there. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Ask me about Chinese Shang Dynasty weaponry, yeah. I'm <laughs> growing in my knowledge of that all the time, whether I want to or not. Um, yeah, so it was, it was her moving up here that kind of yeah, led towards relocating up here. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and it was that point of that move of thinking, actually, do you know what, if, if I don't maybe do the PhD now, if I just move up and go into other work, maybe it won't happen. So, yeah, so now we're in a position we can take the plunge. Um, Durham just felt really nicely, actually, because I was toying with a few places. I was toying with, yeah, with, with Leicester, <laughs> again, mm. going back to there and, and had some early conversations. Um, but it was actually, uh, it was Chris Capel, uh, who's a conservator, yeah, long-standing archaeological conservator, was in the department at Durham at the time. Purely by chance, he came down to Lincoln. He was doing some research, some comparative research on a, a medieval helmet that was in the collections at Lincoln. Just got chatting with him over a cup of coffee, talking about research ideas, and him saying, oh, well, actually, some of my colleagues at Durham might be really interested in, the, yeah, in what you're thinking of doing. Yeah, so Richard Hingley, Robin Skeet, you know, these people might be really interested. So it all stemmed from there. I kind of, you know, fired a, a letter up to them saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Got a hugely positive response, and, uh, yeah, never, never looked back. Um yeah, so, so it, it works out quite well. I mean, Durham's about you know an hour and three quarters on the train down from Edinburgh, so I, I can uh, I can bob up and down whenever I need to. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're in a good by distance, yeah. but you know, it, you're in a good place for libraries anyway, I suppose, with Edinburgh. This is it. Yeah, Europe, got, so, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got all access to the Edinburgh University libraries. Yeah, which you know, is, is a fantastic space and, and good resources there. You know, good good archaeology department in Edinburgh as well. So yeah. no shortage of stuff there. So so yeah, it just kind of fell fell that way. So uh, so yeah, just you know, early days of. Uh, Second year now, so yeah, nearly another two years of uh, of this lifestyle, and we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah, well, I mean, just enjoy. It. I mean, it seems to be going well, and uh, obviously you've got your uh, got the feedback from the uh, survey to look forward to. So the good thing is, is that you're not kind of scrubbing around with data. Like you're going to have, you know, you've got stuff to work with. Uh, I suppose as well, your your own, your own prior experience will serve you well throughout as well. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been to a lot of museums. Yeah, I'm not going to be entirely blind. Yeah. yeah. Museum galleries, yeah, with the data and the analysis of yeah, eighty galleries. Once I've got that done, then yeah, yeah, hopefully it won't be too short to data. It's, it's just some of the intricacies of actually, actually, crap, how am I actually going to start actually you know, yeah, managing yeah. them? You know, how do I turn some of this into useful stuff? That'll be what be nice about conferences because yeah, going back to conferences, you know, some of the it's been really nice over, the, over the, this last year to talk at so many big conferences. But it's it's very much I've been very aware. You know, when you're a first year PhD student, you're very much talking about. This is what I'd like to do. You know, this is the idea I have. You know, this is where I think things might be. It'll be nice as this year goes on to turn that into this is what I've actually found out. This is what some data is actually starting to show. You know, so that that would be a nice shift. I think I'll uh, start to feel like I'm actually getting somewhere and producing anything. There is a a sense early on that you're just kind of you know, quoting everybody else's work. Yeah. <laughs> not, not really producing to, you know, too much yourself apart from ideas. So. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that, that changes as, as time goes on. Yeah, cool. All right. So, well, just to, to bring it to an end, then. Um, so, anything you want to you want to advertise? I mean, where where can people find the survey? Uh, yeah, that is a question. That that's part of um, online surveys. Um, that is at. Um, so yeah, so it's um, https, and then it's durham.onlinesurveys.ac.uk forward slash gods behind glass so right. yeah if anybody's uh, listening and willing to to fill in that that would be absolutely absolutely superb and um, get as many responses as possible from around the world um you're on uh, oh sorry Harry. 
I was just going to say, obviously, yeah, we've got the uh, the, the Rack Track conference coming up in the, in Split in Croatia. So hopefully, it'll be yeah, great to meet some people there. Yeah, come along to the Roman Britain session if, if you can. Yes, like do that. do. Yeah, <laughs> great, some great speakers. Top, I know. Top, yeah. top draw, top speakers. draw. <laughs> um, <laughs> get some lived experience of standing in the Temple of Jupiter <laughs> as well. Um, I'm looking forward to that. That'd be good. I've never been to Split before, so it'd be an experience. Um, yeah. And also, as well, you're on you're on Twitter as well, which also has the link to the survey in your your bio. It does, yes, my bio has the link there. Yes, yeah, my, my Twitter name, yeah, Lidongni, L-I-D-O-N-G-N-I, which is my Chinese name that my wife gave me, so... <laughs> oh, that's right. <fine>. Yeah. <laughs> cool, right, Any, anything else as well you want to flag up? Um, no, I don't think so, nothing. That's the main... Uh... The main bits, yeah. So just say, if you, if you work in British museums and you see me around surveying your gallery or anything, then please, please do look kindly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, All right. Cool. Right. Thank you very much. Otherwise, no. That's that's great stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.